If you have a Bible, please take it and turn to Isaiah 46. Maybe you are still there um, after Joel read that, but we will be in Isaiah 46 and 47 this afternoon. Isaiah says in the first verse of his prophecy back in chapter 1 uh, that, that this pro- the, the ministry that he fulfilled, uh, he fulfilled this role as a, a prophet during the, the reigns of four kings in Judah's history. However, chapters 40 through 66, which is the section that we're in now, concern a time beyond the reigns of those four kings. They, they look to a day that was coming 100 years in the future when Babylon was going to take the people of Judah into exile, and to a time even further in the future when God was going to send Cyrus, the king of Persia, to defeat the Babylonians and return Judah to the land of promise. In these chapters then, Isaiah is helping the people of Judah process the mystery of God's ways in using a pagan king like Cyrus as his anointed means of deliverance and calling his people away from rebelling like Babylon and into listening and remembering and trusting him. The difficulty, if you remember, of trusting the Lord for Israel was found in the fact that powerful nations seemed to be in control of their fate, and therefore the gods of those empires appeared to be superior to the God of Israel. The ones that were winning seemed like they were the winners. (laughs) The ones with the power and the money and the influence seemed to be superior to God. That struggle to, to trust the true God and not the false gods of our day is not reserved for God's people in the past. Of course, every day we are faced with an array of God substitutes vying for our trust. And some of them seem so attractive, don't they? They seem so powerful and potentially trustworthy. We look at the elite of the world and they worship the gods of money, sex, and power, and apparently they face few consequences and do pretty well, so why don't we just join them? Then there are times when we feel that that we're worthy of our own trust. We think we can bear our own burdens, we can determine our own future, and we can save our own souls. We can do anything we put our minds to, we're told. We praise faith on Sunday, but we sort of scoff at it during the week, choosing instead to trust our own strength and our own stamina and our own willpower to get through life. And so in the midst of uncertainty about how God works, and in the midst of temptation to trust something other than him, Isaiah 46 and 47 says to us, Rest on the only God who can carry you. Rest on the only God who can carry you. You probably saw this past week that Simone Biles, the top female gymnast in the world, withdrew from the Olympics, citing mental health as the reason. The weight and the pressure of success had worn her down, and she bravely said that her personal well-being was more important than winning a competition. And in many ways, what she did was a very gospely thing to do, wasn't it? She admitted her need and her inability to save herself by herself. In the midst of voices telling her to push through and try harder, she chose to rest. Friends, brothers and sisters, God's word reveals God to us. And it calls us to trust in him Alone, It shows that he is worthy of our trust, not only for who he is, but for what he's already done, and, and also because of the doom that will come if we choose to build our lives on some other foundation other than him. You don't have to be an Olympic athlete to feel the weight of the world on your shoulders. And so whether you feel like you're winning or you are drowning, 
whether you feel optimistic or depressed, whether you are full of faith or you're full of doubt, we all need to pause this afternoon and remember to rest. Rest on the only God who can carry us. Dr. Joel read Isaiah 46 for us, and in this chapter, and in chapter 47, which we'll read later, Isaiah is in familiar territory as he compares again and contrasts again the gods of the nations with the one true and living God, with Yahweh, the God of Israel. And in contrast to all these God substitutes, the Lord says of himself in chapter 46, verse four at the end, I think this is the key phrase, he says, I have made, I will bear, I will carry, and I will save. God is shown in this chapter to be the one who bears us, the one who made and orchestrates all things, and the one who alone can save that. And in that, he is exalted above the gods of the nations and above any other thing that we might look to for security or for refuge or for joy or for salvation. Let's think through this chapter 46, verses one through four, we see that false gods are a burden, but our God bears us. False gods are a burden, but our God bears and carries us. That, that's the, the key word of this passage, it's carry or bear. You see it especially in verses one through, through four. Isaiah, in fact, seems to be expanding on something that he said in chapter 45, verse 20. It says in there, they have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Proving that point, the the scene that opens chapter 46 is of the Babylonians fleeing from before Cyrus and the Persian army. And as they go out, what are they doing? They're seen carrying their gods, carrying their idols on their backs. These gods that were supposed to help them have to be borne by them. Have you had the experience of finding that something that was intended to be helpful becomes a burden? It becomes annoying or it becomes a a hindrance. I always feel that way about travel pillows. (laughs) Thankfully, they're light, but they're kind of bulky. And I just think, why am I carrying this thing around the world? I'm also reminded of sometimes we return from vacation and I'll find something that I took for our family to enjoy. And I realized that all I really did was I packed it and then I unpacked it and then I packed it and now I was unpacking it again. That's all we did with it. If I'm not mistaken, we took some lettuce to the North Carolina coast this past summer intending to eat it, only to bring it home and throw it away. So I think the lettuce got a vacation, I guess, out of the deal. Um, the idols of Babylon are here described as burdens that do nothing for those that must carry them except burden them. The specific gods being borne by the Babylonians are significant. You see their names in verse 1. Alec Motyer writes that Bel or Baal, also known as Marduk, was the, the city god of Babylon. And he was the head of all the Babylonian gods, while Nebo, Bel's son, was the city god of the nearby city Borsippa, and the god of writing and wisdom. And at each new year in this lavish festival, the, the images of these two gods were brought into Babylon, where Nebo was supposed to write on the tables of destiny the fates decreed by the gods for the coming year. And now we see these gods being paraded, not joyfully into the city for a great festival, but being wearily borne out of the city in a panicked defeat. I wonder if that year they had predicted their own downfall. 
Did they talk about the day when the people of Babylon would have to carry them out of the city because of the invading Persians? What has become of these great gods? The horses and the donkeys that are carrying them could really care less what they represent because they're just burdened by them. They're, they're worse than useless. They are burdensome. They are oppressive. And in light of this scene, God commands us for the first time in verse 3 to listen to him. Listen to me, O house of Jacob. He calls us to hear what he says and to know who he is. Remember that Isaiah is looking forward to the other side of the Babylonian captivity. He's looking forward to the, the release of Judah and the return of Jerusalem under the rule of Cyrus. And to them, he's, the Lord says, I carried you, I carried you the whole way. But more broadly, he speaks to his people in every generation. He speaks as the God who is not a burden, but as the God who bears our burdens as the God who bears us and carries us. In Exodus 19.4, after God had rescued his people from Egyptian slavery, he says this to them, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And in Deuteronomy 1.31, Moses says to Israel, the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. And here we're told that God will carry us through our whole lives. During our Thursday prayer time, Kelsey pointed out the surprise of verse 4, noting that it is natural to think of a, a baby being carried in her mother's womb or of a child being held by his father. But God also says that he will carry us even to old age. He will bear us from conception all the way to death. There, there are times when, when my children want me to carry them while we're on a walk. And eventually, I usually will. <laughs> but there are times when I want someone to carry me because I'm tired. No one will. I don't know why. <laughs> In life, if, if we're walking by faith, I think the older we get, the more we see how much we need the Lord to carry us. Rather than stubbornness in old age, or refusal to admit our need and our weakness, eyes of faith see that it's better to let the Lord bear us than to trust ourselves. And the beautiful thing is God is never reluctant to hold us. From birth to gray hairs, he will carry us. I think we would do well to remember that the kingdom of God is for little children, Jesus says. It's for those old and young who are not ashamed to ask their father to carry them. David Jackman says that when it comes to false gods, the one who makes it must bear it. If you make a god, you have to carry it. When we trust in money or in relationships or status or power, we have to carry the weight of those things. But when we trust in the Lord, he carries us. The words of Jesus in Matthew 11:28 28 through 30 probably come to many of your minds. This is what Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland says this, what helium does to a balloon, Jesus' yoke does to his followers. 
We are buoyed along in life by his endless gentleness and supremely accessible lowliness. He doesn't simply meet us at our place of need. He lives in our place of need. He never tires of sweeping us into his tender embrace. It is his very heart. False gods are a burden, but our God bears us. Second, false gods are made, but our God makes and ordains all things. False gods are made, but our God makes and ordains all things. And verse five, God asks if he can even be compared to any of the false gods, and the answer is a resounding no. It's like comparing one of the Olympic athletes that we've been watching to me. <laughs> There's no comparison. Or maybe even further, it's like comparing the greatest Olympic athletes to the animal kingdom. Think about this. Usain Bolt holds the 100 meter world record with a time of 9.58 seconds. He ran 22.9 miles per hour. But a greyhound dog can run 100 meters in 5.33 seconds. <laughs> Almost half the time. The great white shark is thought to have a top swimming speed of 25 miles per hour with bursts up to 35 miles per hour, which means its speed is 10 times faster than the typical swimmer. Human swimmer, I should say. And the high jump record, you know what the high jump record is? It's just over eight feet, back in the 90s by a guy from Cuba named Javier Sotomayor. You know how high a gray kangaroo can jump? Not eight feet, 44 feet. <laughs> That's high. So just like those comparisons, it's impossible compare, to compare God to idols. They're, they're, they're in completely different categories, namely false and true. And not only is it impossible to compare God to an idol, but then it's absurd to make an idol that you have to carry around, it says in, in verse seven, to make that thing and then worship it and then cry out to it for help. To point out the difference between himself and false gods in verse eight, God calls for his people to remember what he has done in the past and to remember who he is. But it's not just a call to remember because this call to remember is, is also a rebuke. Verse eight, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. That's a little harsh. It's a rebuke though for forgetting. It's a rebuke for walking through life as if God has not been carrying us the whole way. God carries us, but he doesn't coddle us. And he will rebuke us if we need it. So we must remember what he's done. We have, what he's done for his people in times past, what he's done for us in, as his specific children. When we begin trusting our own strength and we look to other refuges for help, we need to pause and remember times when all of those things failed us and we found that God alone was our help. And maybe, maybe if we can remember those times, we can get... We, we can not mess around with finding out that all of the refuges are failures and instead just go to the Lord in the beginning and let him carry us the whole way. Coupled with remembering what he has done is re remembering who he is. As has been Isaiah's pattern, he says that our God is unique and incomparable. Why? Because he is the planner, the maker, and the enactor of history. He alone is, is sovereign, determining what will happen, and then bringing about all of his good purposes. Unlike Bell and Nebo, his counsel always stands. Unlike us in our pretend authority, God always accomplishes his will. 
Specifically, we're told here in verse 11 that he calls a bird of prey from the east, which is probably a reference to Cyrus, the king of Persia who delivered his people. And so we're reminded that God's will is not always what we expect or even what we want. A bird of prey is not gentle. Sometimes it's not a very welcome sight. But our God makes and ordains all things, and we can trust him even when we don't understand him. We can look at every twist and turn, every mountain and every valley in our lives, and we can know that God is the maker, maker and the ordainer of all things. Sickness, sorrow, pain, and death will one day be felt and feared no more, but for now, in this land of shadows, our great God uses them. He uses them for our good and to press us deeper into his arms and deeper into his likeness. God carries us. He, he makes and ordains all things. And so it makes perfect sense that while fal false gods cannot save, our God is always ready to save. False gods cannot save, period. But our God is always ready to save. We see this in verses 12 and 13. Verse 12 offers another command to listen to the Lord, the second. Uh, if you're looking for the commands, it's verse three is listen, verse 12 is listen, and in the middle there are two calls to remember in verses eight and nine. And in this command to, to listen is another rebuke for our stubbornness, for our distance from righteousness specifically. He says, you who are far from righteousness. So God says in verse 12, because we're far from righteousness, not that he's going to wait for us to clean up and get close to his righteousness. No, what does he say? Verse 13, I will bring near my righteousness. It's not far off. My salvation will not delay. Righteousness here, says Motyer, is all that accords with God's will and character and purposes, everything that is right with God. He goes on to say, this is the choice God's people face. Will they hold to their sense of what is right or bow to his? To take the latter is an act of faith in him his promises, and his ceaseless good purpose for his people. In essence, this is the issue of justification by faith. God brings his righteousness near to us. And then he calls us to trust in him and thereby be made right with him. The God who shapes history purposed from eternity past and promised throughout the Old Testament that a redeemer would come, and in the person of Jesus, God himself, in all of his righteousness, has come near to us. Jesus did everything right, and therefore he reveals how far we short, how far we fall short of God's righteousness. He even reveals our shortcomings in his death because he dies for our sins and not his own. And now the resurrected Jesus calls us to trust in him and be made righteous not to work hard and earn righteousness, not to strive to get closer and closer to his righteousness, but to rest in the righteousness that he brings near to us, to let him carry us from birth to old age and through the river of death into the celestial city. And all he asks is that we would turn from sin and self and rest in him, rest in him and in his finished work on the cross. We must, of course, acknowledge our unrighteousness. We must admit our sinfulness and repent of it. 
And then we're called to, to cast ourselves upon the Lord and to know the wonder of his salvation, to be given his righteousness, a righteousness that's, that's not our own, that we didn't earn, a righteousness that we have through faith. Our God alone can bear us. Our God alone ordains all things, and our God alone can save. And he invites us to rest in him. But what if we just reject him? Chapter 47 gives us the answer to that question. It's a taunt song against Babylon, and it simply says, those who replace and rebel against the Lord are doomed. Those who replace and rebel against the Lord are doomed. Doomed. These words in chapter 47 are specifically, specifically against Babylon in this time period, but they're also against all that Babylon represents in the scriptures. The, the Tower of Babel in, in Genesis 11 is one of the earliest places of a prideful rebellion against God, which is bookended by the final fall of Babylon in Revelation 18. And Babylon is then mentioned throughout the scriptures. Babylon, says Barry Webb, represents humankind organized in defiance of God. What is Babylon? It's humankind organized, think about the Tower of Babel, organized for what purpose? Organized in defiance of God. Babylon stands for worldly power and pride. It, is, it stands for all of the self-made and self-assured men and women in every age. It's for all the cities and the nations that pridefully seek, seek a name for themselves and not for the Lord. And until Christ's return, there's always a little bit of Babylon that needs to be rooted out and replaced with humble trust in the God who carries us, who controls all things, and who alone can save. Let's consider these words of Isaiah 47 that tell the future of those who replace and rebel against the Lord. I'll read it in, in parts so we can try to understand these words. Look first at the first four verses of chapter 47. God's word says, Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind flour. Put off your veil. Strip off your robe, uncover your legs, pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered and your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. These verses describe a radical change of situation. Babylon has changed from an exalted and pampered woman to a humiliated and captive slave. This woman, this city who sat in palaces, now sits in the dust. Tells us that present circumstances don't rule out future desolation, whether it be for nations or individuals. You look around and you see the people that are exalted. It does not mean that they will not one day be humbled. You look at the nations that seem to be great. Babylon was one, and it was brought to the dust. No one is exempt from God's judgment if they reject him. Verse 4 speaks of our Redeemer revealing that everything that is happening to Babylon is for the redemption of Israel. God, the Holy One, the Redeemer of his people, is always working to save his people. But his redemption of Israel is also a means of punishing Babylon. Look at verses 5 through 7. Sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called the mistress of kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. 
On the aged, you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. You said, I shall be mistress forever, so that you did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. God was using Babylon to punish his people, but their actions were merciless and arrogant. The aged that God says he will bear were burdened by Babylon. Their self-centered idolatry led to a self-absorption that neglected others, especially the most vulnerable in the world. That's what's true for all personal improvement and personal salvation projects and all idolatry. Eventually, it leads to the oppression of the weak. We're just trying to get ahead ourselves. Babylon's pride is spelled out further in verses 8 through 11. Now, therefore, hear this, you lover of pleasures, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come to you in a moment. In one day, the loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure. In spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments, you felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray, and you said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me, but evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone, and ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. The most blatant hubris of Babylon is found in verses 8 and 10, where Babylon takes up the words of the Lord and says of themselves, I am, and there is no one besides me. If you've been with us, chapters 40, chapter 45 said over and over again, God said, I am the Lord, and there is no one besides me. And now Babylon says, I am, and there's no one beside me. That's what pride does. Pride says, I'm superior to everyone. Pride says, I will not face the difficulties that other people in this world face. Pride says, I will answer to no one for my actions. Nobody sees what I do. But what does the Lord say? The Lord says to all of us, when we're filled with that kind of pride, that kind of pride he says, I'm superior to everyone, <laughs> not you. And you will face the pains of life. Your money and your power and your false gods, they cannot save you from the trials of life. And you will answer for your, for your actions, for your sin, for your lack of faith. Verses 12 through 13 reveal the worthlessness of their attempts to see into the future and even to shape it. You've seen this talk about sorceries and enchantments. Look in verse 12. Stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorceries with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you may be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you. Those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, who at the new moons have made known what shall come upon you. Uh, Babylon's assumed power stems from their false assurance about the future. They, they think they know what's going to happen, but they're hoping in their stargazing and their enchantments to make the future clear. And then they pridefully think that they've understood it all correctly. Sometimes we can be the same. We might not look to stars, but what do we look to that, that we think is going to make our future secure? Maybe it's our retirement accounts or our degrees and intellect. We'll be safe because we're smart. We'll be safe because I've got a degree. I'll be safe because I've got a good job. I'll be safe because I've got a nice home. 
We look at our health and we think that's going to protect us into the future, but none of these things are guaranteed. Only the Lord declares the end from the beginning. Only he knows what's going to happen. And so only he should be trusted with our future. Be wise, of course, but only trust the Lord. Don't trust those things. Well, quickly, the result of their pride is that all of their works to save themselves are only going to lead to their doom. Look at verses 14 and 15. Behold, they're like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. No coal for warming oneself is this. No fire to sit before. Such to you are those with whom you have labored, whom you have done, who, you, who have done business with you from your youth. They wander about, each in his own direction. There is no one to save you. Chilling words there at the end. There is no one to save you. If we're trusting in God's substitutes, if we're trusting ourselves, we're going to find in the end that there is no one to save us. So instead, what should we do? Instead of being like Babylon in chapter 47, instead of trusting in false gods, instead of trusting in ourselves and reaping the doom that comes with that, what should we do? We should listen. Listen to God. Listen to who he is. Listen to his word that he gives us here. Listen to him. He doesn't ask us to carry him. He promises to carry us. He doesn't ask us to be righteous. He brings his righteousness to us. He is a God unlike any other God. He's the one who makes and ordains history. He's in control of all these things. Why would we trust someone else or something else? He alone can save us. Listen to him. And remember, remember what God has done. Even now we get to remember Jesus. As we turn to the Lord's Supper, we, we seek to do that. We seek to remember Christ. We remember his, his broken body and his shed blood. We remember 1 Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. If you are trusting in Christ alone for salvation and you've been baptized as the first step of obedience and following him, then I want to invite you to take this meal with us. I want to invite you to remember Jesus. And as you remember him, may it be an act of taking the bread and taking the cup of an act of rest, of resting in the only God who can carry us, of coming to the Father like little children and saying, Father, would you carry me? Father, would you help me? I cannot save myself. Only you can save and only you can carry. And you will carry me. You'll carry me to old age and you'll carry me all the way to eternity. Nothing else can do that. No one else can do that. You can't do it. I can't do it. But God can. And so I invite you, if you have put your faith in Christ alone, to take the bread and the cup as a means of resting in the only God who can carry us. I want to invite you into a moment of silence, um, and then I will pray, and then I'll give you some instructions about how we'll take the Lord's Supper. But let's take a moment of silence to reflect on God's word and prepare our hearts.
Father, we confess that we are often stubborn of heart. So Lord, would you break our hearts? Would you make us little children again who come and ask you to carry us? Would you cause us just to rest in you, to stop striving, fighting after things that can never satisfy us? Lord, you alone can save us. You alone can carry us. You alone know the future. Lord, as we take this meal together, may we remember Jesus. Jesus who has borne our sins. Jesus who is the the perfect display of your righteousness and who offers us his righteousness through faith. Lord, would you shape us more into the image of Jesus as we take this Lord's Supper together. I ask it in Christ's name. Amen.